Father, thank you for the word of God and all that it tells us. And Father, even the things that we don't want to think about or spend any kind of concentrated effort on, Lord, it's important that we know. It's important that we know our enemy. And uh, asking, Father, for your blessing of adding it to our understanding that we'd be more aware of his schemes and his tactics uh, within this age, uh, that he does rule over this present age, uh, that even Jesus called him the God of this world. Uh, And I pray, Father, that we would be very much aware, uh, not be taken off guard, uh, but, Father, that the word of God would be brought to our minds to refresh us, to keep us uh, pursuing holiness and grace. And, Father, please uh, help us to dwell upon the vindication that will come through Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray it in his name. Amen. Let's take our Bibles. Let's turn open to Ezekiel chapter 28. Today we're dealing with the topic of Satan. I'm not a big topical preacher guy. I'm really not. I really don't care for it. Uh, My preference is to start with the book of the Bible and just preach verse by verse through the Bible. Uh, But understanding where we are, everybody getting acclimated to me, me getting acclimated to everyone else, and everything that God wants us to do in the future, we've got to start with a thorough knowledge of the overview of the Word of God. And it just so happens that we are at a pivotal moment where we have to deal with the person of Satan. So we're going to find a lot about him in Ezekiel 28. Uh, But if you notice on your papers that you have, we're we're going through something called Firm Foundations, and the idea is to get our thinking all lined up together. One of the most important things that we found so far is the Bible is God's self-revelation. It is how he wants you to know him. And he has decided to place it in such a way as where every single person can read it. I think that's important. Now, we know that the natural man does not understand spiritual things. They're spiritually derived from God. But that doesn't change the fact that a, that a, that a natural man, an unsaved person, can't read. I think that's important to understand how God has done that. The second thing, if you notice at the top, is the fact that God is eternal. He's always been. He always will be. He never had a beginning. He never has an end. He is also sovereign. He is a king. He is a ruler is who he is. And also that he creates everything good. It's how he makes everything. He made it good. What we looked at the past three weeks in particular was the fact that the creation of man and woman makes us responsible. We have been given a task We have been entrusted with responsibility. And any time that someone is responsible, they are also accountable. Every single person, doesn't matter if you're saved, doesn't matter if you're unsaved, every single person will have to be answerable for what they have done, what they have believed, the motivations of the heart before a holy God, every single person. So that's the foundation that we've laid so far. And today we're going to talk about the enemy of God. If you would, look at your handout. There are two prominent passages that deal with the adversary of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. The first, what we're going to look at here, provides his origin, privilege, and personal responsibility. The second section that we're going to look at in Isaiah displays his pride. So as we look here, first and foremost, Ezekiel 28, we're going to start here in verse 12. And and I tell you what, if you put your finger at verse 12, I'm sorry, let's do verse 11, and then look back over at verse 2 of this same chapter. Maybe you have to flip a page, and that's okay. But I want you to see something very interesting. Actually, 
Let's do that. Context is a big deal with me, so I don't want to just leave anybody running and then you fall off the runway somewhere, okay? Notice, the word of the Lord came again to me saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre. Everybody see that word leader? And you may have a little number next to it for your footnote. What's your footnote say there that an alternative translation could be? Ruler or prince. Prince is probably the best translation here. To the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord. Now, if you look over at 11, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. Same person? Probably not. The text makes an emphatic change in what we're looking at. And what we have to do is you have to use context to determine the meaning. Now, here's what's interesting. Everything you read through from verses 2 all the way to verses 10, you can see that this is a human element involved. We're talking about a literal guy who is ruling in this place called Tyre. That's who we're dealing with, and that, who, that is who God is pronouncing a judgment against. But when you move into this, you see a shift, and we have to observe, observe, observe when we look. So look at verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, now remember, thus says the Lord God. Why is that little phrase, thus says the Lord God, important? Why? Because he's actually speaking. He is actually saying, Prophet Ezekiel, you are going to say exactly true things of which I would say to them. I am speaking through you as an intermediary with this person. It's God's words. It matters. It's got weight and significance. Everybody with me? Anybody as excited about it as I am? Just making sure, okay. I was telling some of you, Considering today's sermon, there is coffee back there in the corner. So if you want to get some so you stay awake and you look real excited about this, it's good. Talking about Satan's never exciting. But notice this. You had the seal of perfection. Does that sound like a king? Mm, depends on how you mean perfection, maybe. Nobody's perfect except God. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Does that sound like a king? Maybe. Anybody ever heard of a beautiful king before? That's a little weird, right? But here's where we get the real kicker. You were in Eden, the garden of God. How's that? How, and think about this. If we did our research and we said, okay, when was Ezekiel written? And then we say, okay, when did Eden exist? We're going to have a long gap, aren't we? We're going to have a stretch of time. And so immediately the context tells us, okay, wait a second. If it was talking about a prince before, and it's talking about a king now, they're both over Tyre, but yet this king is really old. Or God is using this to get the attention to do something else. Now, here's what I personally believe about this. And just so you know, I have an 11 or 12-page paper, because I like to do that for you guys, that I made copies of it sitting out there on Satan, Okay just to go over and kind of look at him. It's not exhaustive, but it kind of gives you a general understanding, and you'll understand more of where I'm coming from with this. But what I seem to conclude from this is that the prince of Tyre is talking about the human person that is ruling over this region. The king of Tyre seems to be, everybody hold on your hats, the Elohim that is behind him. Does everybody remember our discussion on angels, Elohim, and all that stuff? Does everybody remember the paper out there? How many people are confused? Praise the Lord Jesus. This is great. 
So what we find is, is when rebellion took place and the angels rebelled against the Lord God, they were given specific responsibilities over the governments and kingdoms of the world to uphold because they will be accountable and they will be judged as well. And so we saw such things as Psalm 82, Psalm 89, where the Lord is furious with them. You are not ruling justly. You are oppressing the poor. You're allowing wickedness to run rampant. I will judge you like a common man. I will put you to death is the idea of the judgment that he brings into the situation. And so the only thing I can deduce from this is that Satan is the Elohim ruling behind, little g God, ruling behind this king of Tyre. He is the one that is pulling the strings of the government in the kingdom at that time. Now, we all live in America. No one's surprised, right? Everybody with me? Is that too political? Okay, praise God. Let's move forward. So notice, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Notice that he has intelligence. Notice that he has radiance and brilliance. Notice that he is in a specific location at a point in time. Very important. Now, notice we don't have anything about that he's fallen yet. And just real quick, when we talk about the word Lucifer, because we're going to see the word Lucifer in the Isaiah passage. The word Lucifer is actually a Latin translation that we deal with from Jerome, who wrote the Vulgate. Has anybody ever heard of that? Or is all that stuff that no one cares about? Okay, anyway, Lucifer, the idea of him being designated Lucifer didn't come along until way later. But what it means is son of the dawn, or we're commonly referring to the idea of Daystar. Have we heard that before? Daystar, son of the dawn? That's the idea of the name Lucifer. But what we find is we really don't have any name for him. Satan should actually be the Satan. Why? Because Satan means adversary is what it means. When we deal with the idea of devil, we're dealing with the idea of an accuser is what we're dealing with. And remember, context always determines meaning. Whenever Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, it's not because Satan was behind him being like, you should tell him you'll die with him. You should try to stop him from getting the crucifixion. Peter's not Satan, right? But what is Peter doing at that moment? He is an adversary to the plan of God. And some translations have mistakenly put the big S on there saying specifically the person of Satan. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that Peter is an adversary to God's will at that moment. Christ had to die. That's God's will. Why? Because sin is existent and it has to be paid for. So that's important. So notice he's in Eden and it specifies it, the garden of God. And look what it says. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper. The lapsus lazuli. That sounds like some 60s diamond, doesn't it? Probably the summer of 67. Anyway, moving on. Some of you laugh because you were there. The turquoise and the emerald. Nine stones are mentioned. And notice after that it says, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets. Some, if you're reading the New King James translation, it has to do with the idea of your timbers and your pipes, which is what people often associate that Satan was a like divine minister of music or something before he ever fell. That's kind of scary. But anyway, then uh, everybody wants to talk about devil music and whatever. Weird people. But moving on here, uh, the idea of settings and sockets. In other words... It was a gold inlaid section that had these stones grafted into it. Now stop for a second. Is Satan beautiful? 
Yeah, before his fall, he's beautiful. In fact, don't we read in the New Testament that he disguises himself as what? An angel of light. He's probably the most beautiful thing you would ever see in your life if you could see him. See, all of us think back to that one movie and we think he looks like Al Pacino all the time. That's not him, right? He's probably brilliant, beautiful. He's radiant. Now, some of you ladies are like, I wouldn't mind having a ring with all these jewels on it, right? Interesting thing about this, being inlaid into gold, these nine stones make up nine of the 12 stones that are found in the breastplate of the high priest when you look in Exodus. Very interesting. So they each have their particular significance that we can draw from. It all started way before eternity, way before man, way before all of that stuff. All we've got is the garden. So notice it says here, they were in you. On the day that you were what? Very important. Because this right here will serve as a seed to change your thinking about who Satan is. How many people have thought at one time in your life, you may not think that now, and I know I'm digging up past sins, that's fine. But have you thought at one time in your life that it was God versus Satan in the pay-per-view Royal Rumble? Anybody ever thought that before in your life? Yes, we've all thought it's this whole God versus Satan, and it's almost like they're arm wrestling to see who's going to get the world and the universe. Is that how it is? No, it's not. And if for any other reason, just looking at the text, you were what? Created, and God is the what? Creator. Now, here's, here's where we're going to get a little philosophical. I know it's only 9.30 in the morning, but we're going to get a little philosophical. Because there are some people that actually believe, well, because God created Satan, and because we know that Satan sinned, God created sin. We think about that. Can God create sin? Hmm, interesting to think about. The question is, then, where did sin come from? Because I read over and over and over people in old dusty books who say, of course sin came from God. It exists. It had to come from him. But because he uses sin for his glory, it's okay. Does that idea compromise his character? See, that's what I'm concerned about. Compromising the character of God. So notice what it says here. On the day you were created, he's not eternal, he's a creature. They were prepared. Now stop for a second. What covers Satan has been personally and specially prepared by God. See, this brings in the whole question of, did God love Satan? See, that's interesting. Probably maybe never thought of that before. I was talking to one of you about this. I don't remember who. Did God love Satan? That's very interesting to think about. I don't know anybody that would take the time to personally craft and do these things for someone if there wasn't a reason and a goal behind it. Now, everybody stick with me. I'm not a heretic. Don't bring out the pole and start burning me, okay? Let's move forward. Now, watch this, verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Some translations say you're an anointed guardian cherub. Uh, there's one thing I saw where the idea of covers is the idea that the fact that Satan would spread out his wings and therefore he served in a high priestly capacity. I don't understand where in the world that would have came from. We have no need for high priests at this moment. There is no sin. There is no need for blood. There is no need for atonement. So we don't have any need there for that. But what does it mean? What we can deduce at the the bare minimum is the fact that he has responsibility. Would you agree? I mean, a cherub is different from a regular angel, right? 
It's different from a seraph. That's a different kind of angel. Principalities, powers, those types of things. All different types of angels that we deal with. So there's something different, special in the idea that it says anointed. That is special responsibility. He has a special task of which to fulfill. He has a role to live up to before God. Now, what did that look like before creation of people and all that? Man, we don't know. We're trying to grasp what we can from the text about it. But it says here, you were an anointed cherub, and I placed you there. Now, does everybody remember when we talked about the creation of Adam in chapter 2 of Genesis, and he fashioned and he formed Adam special, and then he placed him in the garden to work it and keep it. There is the point of responsibility. There is the point where these things are entrusted to you to uphold. Here's what we gain. Not only do humans have responsibility and accountability before God, but all of the unseen, all of the angels have responsibility and accountability before holy God as well. Everybody with me? Notice, everyone is accountable, and this is so important. Everyone that is created is accountable to the creator. Got it? Okay, excellent. If I have pit stains, don't look at those. Now notice, I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God, and you walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Some people believe that the stones of fire, some scholars believe that those actually speak of angels. And the reason is, is because if you do some research in Hebrew cosmology, because that's your thing you like to do, right? Scrapbooking and Hebrew cosmology, that's what you're into. But if you were to get into that, you would actually find that, that back then they believed that the stars that were set in the sky were actually angels. And those that had fallen, those fallen angels or falling stars were actually those who had rebelled against Yahweh Elohim. Interesting to think about. You walked amongst these stones of fire. You used to have a presence amongst them and you were on God's holy mountain. Notice it says after that, you were, what's that word? Blameless, perfect. Does that mean without sin? Could be. Does that mean without any flaw whatsoever or ever will have? It does not. One interesting thing to see whenever you see words like blameless, perfect, unless it is speaking of God, only God is perfect. The idea that it means here is complete or free of blemish is the idea. And it could be speaking of a state or when we talk about the idea of maturity in our Christian walks, Everybody familiar with James chapter 1? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Does that mean free of sin and really free of sin, lacking in nothing? No, no. It means that you have a maturity in your faith. You have a completeness of your faith of how you're walking with the Lord and trusting him moment by moment. That's the idea. So we see that idea of blameless here. Keep that in mind. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were, what? Created. Now, stop for just one second. If your Bible's set up like mine, I've got a single column thing going down here. You may have yours running side by side, two columns. That's fine. But I would call this Ezekiel 28, verse 15, and then I would put a little C after it. Why? Because it's the third thing really mentioned. You're blameless in your ways, A, from the day you were created, B, C, 
Pay close attention, please. This will destroy a lot of messed up thinking. Until unrighteousness was found in you. Where does sin come from? What do you think? Within us. In fact, I even put it in big, bold face to make sure everybody get it. See, you guys were all not having an answer. Notice this. Sin originates within a person. It is not any different from how it originates in us. Now we, since we're all born in Adam, and we're going to deal with that starting next week, we're born in Adam, we are already born in a fallen state. We already sin. There's nothing we can do to merit, earn salvation whatsoever. But notice where it started for Satan. And we're going to find out, notice where it starts for Adam and Eve. Sin originates within. Now here's what this tells us. This tells us that Satan had the capacity to not sin. How do we know that? Verses 13, 14, and 15 A and B. But he also had the capacity to sin. How do we know that? 28 verse 15 C. Does everybody see that? And where did the unrighteousness originate? Here. Notice that God didn't give it to him. Notice that God didn't have Satan sin for his glory. That's not what happened. I can't imagine this idea of, well, Satan, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set it up so that you sin, and when you sin, I'm going to personally grieve and be upset and go to the great lengths of throwing my son up on a cross to be a public spectacle and to die and to give up his life for everyone in the world so that they could have salvation, but then I'm going to get glorified out of the whole thing. And how did it all start? Because you sin. God does not start sin. Sin is completely contrary to his character. In fact, we read in James, he does not tempt anyone, nor can he be tempted by anyone. He has nothing to do with promoting sin. It is contrary to his character. It is so important to understand. Could you trust a God that sinned just a little bit? What if he talked like we do? Well, it's just a little white lie. Does that make God good then? No. When we talk about the idea of perfection, God is the pinnacle. He sets the standard of which we should understand everything that flows out of that. Is everybody with me? Okay, yeah, see, thinking caps. Everybody got that? Everybody, I don't even have my, yeah, I do. Get your pins out and mark it, right? Your Grace Bible Church pen, exactly. We got more out there if you need it. Good job. All right. So notice, where does sin originate? It originates within the person. Look here, verse 16. By the abundance of your trade. Does anybody have a different translation there? What do you say? Multitude of what? Mer- multitude, and you said thy, right? So that's King James. That's the King Jimmy right there, right? Multitude of thy merchandise. That's how you know it. That's good. I'm not knocking you. That's great. It helps to have different translations so that we can compare. Who else has got something different? Anybody? What do you got? Go ahead. Widespread what? Through your widespread trade, what do you have? The multitude of your iniquities. What translation do you have? Really? 
doesn't say the abundance of your trade? Because I'm using the NASB. Is, this, is that the revised NASB? Uh-oh. Somebody's playing with Scripture. We're in trouble. Here's probably what the translation should be. The wealth of your merchandise is the idea. In other words, there's an abundance of something. And merchandise here doesn't mean like, does everybody remember the store service merchandise? Anybody remember that store? Is that just a southern thing? Might be. Okay. Terrible example. Hmm. Okay. We know what merchandise is, right? It's usually goods that can be bartered, buy, sell, trade. We like that. But the idea of merchandise here means everything that is valuable about you is the idea. So think of it that way of what Ezekiel's getting at here. By the abundance of everything that is valuable about you, you were, now pay close attention because this goes exactly with chapter uh, 28, verse 15c. You were internally filled. You were internally Where does sin originate? Within a person. You are internally filled with violence. He had violence at the very center core of his being. You ever felt like that? Only driving in Madison, right? Exactly. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I've been here long enough to know. All right. And notice this. And you what? There it is. There it is. Now, here's what's interesting. Notice that it doesn't say until unrighteousness was found in you, you were internally filled with violence. Notice after the unrighteousness was found in you, it doesn't immediately go to sin. Why is that? Why is that? Do me a favor. Everybody take your hand out here. Put it in your Bible, unless you have one of those handy bookmark strings. Okay? Turn over to James chapter 1. James chapter James is just a fantastic book. I've debated whether or not to have a Sunday night thing where we go through the book of James. Would anybody attend if we did that? Six of you? Okay. Three of them. Just kidding. That looks like a pretty good group. We might do that. We might do that. James is a fascinating book. Here's what I want you to see. In fact, we'll go ahead and read the part about the Lord as well. James chapter 1. There is no James 2, so it's not 1 James, just letting you know. Some people ask, you know, Second John, it's right after First John. You ever do that? Is that not funny? Okay, I guess not. Okay, move on. James chapter 1. Everybody find it? If it helps you, it's page 1997 in my book, okay? It probably doesn't help. So notice this, verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted. Are you going to be tempted? It's going to happen. Notice this. I am being tempted by God for, here's the reason, God cannot, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Is that enough to get God off the slate of, in the midst of sin? I think so. But notice what it says, but let's explain how this happens, and this is important, pay attention. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Does sin originate inside? Notice it's not sin yet. It's just temptation. But what does temptation do? Temptation gets at the inside. It starts to arouse that that is fleshly and carnal, and oh, that seems like a great idea to do. That's where it starts to get at you. And then notice it says, 
Verse 15, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Is temptation sin? No, it is not. There are a lot of us that live extremely guilty lives because we think if we've been tempted by something, all of a sudden we've sinned, and all we do is sin all the time, and so therefore all we are is potentially, or sorry, perpetually guilty all of the time, and we lose sight of the sacrifice of Christ and the new life that he avails unto us and the blood that cleanses us from all of those things. We completely lose sight of it because we've allowed temptation to get mischaracterized as sin, and it overshadows our lives put you in bondage is what it does instead we recognize that it's temptation what does the bible say about temptation flee from it exactly and that doesn't mean it's not mall walking okay that means your building is on fire get out you see temptation coming fly get out of there leave have nothing to do with it whatsoever so notice If you entertain the temptation, here's what you can guarantee. Sin's going to take place. And then sin, when it's fully conceived, it brings forth what? Say it. Death. Sin leads to death. Absolutely. And death does not mean ceasing to be. It means separation. Separation from God is what it means. Does everybody see, number one, temptation is not sin. Number two, sin will lead you to death. Now, think about that. Take where you put your paper. Go back. Look back at verse 15 real quick. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence. Does everybody see the temptation going on here? the temptation to act upon something. And we're going to see what that was when we get to the Isaiah passage. But something is tempting Satan at this point, and then he sinned. He entertained it, embraced it, decided to move forward with it, and when it did, it gave birth to sin. Starts inside here. He lusted after something that was not his, and it gives birth to sin. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. Cast away. Separated. Death. Gone. No more. Not having it. Notice he says here, from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub. Probably destroyed there could also be understood as banished. I've banished you. Why do we know that? Because when we think of destroy, we think of obliteration. We think of annihilation. We think of what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. All you have is just a flat plain now with nothing left of evidence. Is Satan still running around today? Okay. When we see that he is finally judged, where does he end up at? Lake of fire. Does he, does, is, does he cease to be in the lake of fire? No, in fact... When he gets thrown in, the Antichrist and the false prophet have been hanging out there for a thousand years, right? They've been tormented all that time. So we know that there is a perpetual time that goes on, and we're told forever and ever, Aeonius, Aeonius is the idea. Keep going, keep going. It doesn't stop. That's the idea. So notice, there's going to come a time he's destroyed, but destroyed does not mean cease to be. He's been banished out of this situation. And look what it says about him. 
from the midst of the stones of fire. You no longer walk amongst those accepted angels anymore. Your heart was lifted up. Why? Because of your what? Beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. Vanity had trumped sanity. It messed up how he thought about God. And notice what it says. Think about the specifics about him. Did we see that he's exceedingly brilliant and intelligent? Yeah. Did we see that he's covered with all kinds of fine jewels? Man, Crookemeyer and Kahn couldn't have done better. Jared couldn't have done better on this, right? Whatever those jewelry companies are. What's one around here? Couldn't have done better, right? They couldn't have come up with finer craftings and settings or anything. But notice what happened. Man, this is a good lesson for us. Notice what happened. He got his eyes off of who God is. He started looking at himself. In fact, and this happens to me a lot. If you ever experience moments where you've had some sort of distance with God, I just don't feel close to him right now. I just don't feel like that we have this connection. I'm just not really motivated to read the word. Chances are we got our eyes on our situation or on us and not on him. That's usually what happens is it's a mess up in focus. We got somewhere else going with it. And we didn't keep our eyes locked on him. Does that, does that make sense? Notice this is the problem he had. He was sitting there, oh God, you're so wonderful, offering worship to him. God, I can't believe how beautiful and amazing that you are, and I'm looking kind of fine here. All of a sudden, he wanted to check out his clothes, and he thought, you know what, I'm a pretty, pretty smart being here. And he started to reason himself being like the creator. Notice it says here, you corrupted, you ruined it. It was rotten. Anybody ever bitten into an apple and you realize it was rotten? <laughs> What's wrong with y'all? <laughs> I've never done that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I've been into it and there's only half a worm. I don't know what's going on. But it's bad, isn't it? It's gross. You ever seen one that looks real pretty on the one side and you turn it around and it's, ooh, right? No pies out of that one, man. Put it in the trash. That's the idea. Ruined it. Rotten. A carcass is the idea. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. You let your vanity overcome how you thought about reality, about who God is, about what he has done. He is the creator, maker of all things. He made you and you are subservient to him. You lost God consciousness about that is the idea. And it says here, I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. You know, Wait a second. This all happened before people were on the earth. How in the world did he get cast out and put before kings so that everybody would see him and make a mockery of him? Interesting stuff to think about. I believe personally this is future. And I believe the kings that he will be made a mockery of are actually going to be those faithful believers from the judgment seat of Christ. When they are ruling and reigning alongside Jesus over the creation... I believe that we will see the day where he will be put to public shame and humiliation. Notice it says here, uh, let's see here, therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth. 
in the eyes of all who see you. In other words, he'll be a public spectacle. And all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified. Man, we don't ever think of Satan like that, that he becomes a terror. The idea we're often afraid of him. We're often worried about what he's going to do to us and that kind of stuff. Notice, Satan, you're going to become a joke before Almighty God. That's how he's going to judge you. So notice what he says. You've become terrified, and here it is, and you will cease to be forever. You'll be brought to nothing is the idea. You will be brought to amount to nothing. He had such a privileged position before God, and now he will amount to nothing. Now, if you look at your sheets, you notice that the next point that we go to is Isaiah 14. You look at chapter 12. I'm sorry, Isaiah 14, verse 12. Now, why is this important? Well, here's a reason why. You know a lot about your enemy. You know what he's doing. It gives you a basis for study for everything else. When we talk about 2 Corinthians, we're not ignorant of his schemes. It'd be good to know what those schemes are, that we would be aware of it. But we know how he operates. We know where sin originates from. We know the fact that he is beautiful, He's not Al Pacino. No, the fact that he does have glorious and radiant coverings. He's a deceiver. Jesus says he's the father of lies. He's been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. But we also know that Jesus says, Matthew chapter 4, he's the God of this world. He's the God of this present age. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. Notice it says here, we're going to talk about why that is next few weeks. Verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven. Stop. Who in the world are we talking about? Context, context, context. Just like we did last time. You got a finger here, verse 12. Put your finger back up on verse 4. You will take up this taunt or this lament against the king of Babylon. What does this tell me if it's going to be talking about Satan? That Satan is the ruling Elohim behind Babylon as well. Now that one is not too far-fetched for us to understand. Anybody know where Babylon is today? Iraq. And actually ends up being a little bit of the western part of Iran, if I'm correct about my geography, just above the Persian Gulf. Have there been some bad anti-God things that have gone on there? Absolutely. Does it surprise you that Satan is probably the ruling power behind that province and region? Shouldn't do it at all. In fact, we know from looking back of Genesis, the tower of what? Same place. Interesting. It has always been a center for opposing the Almighty Creator. Very interesting to see. So notice, this is who this is addressed to, and he changes it to address the Elohim that is pulling the strings behind this character. He says, how you've fallen from heaven. Didn't Jesus say, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning to the earth? Interesting. He says here, O star of the morning, or day star. This is where we get the idea of Lucifer. And here's what it means. It means shining one is the idea. He is the one that shines. That is so insanely important for you to remember for next week. He is the one that shines. Write it down. Write it on your hand. Don't wash your hand. Remember it, okay? So it says here, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened 
the nations. Now remember, you might say, why is this all past time if it's talking about Satan and this is before people were created? Remember, this is happening in Isaiah in a point in history. Very important to understand. So it's talking about what he has done, his acts between the time that man's been on earth. It says here, verse 13, don't miss it. But you said, where? In your heart, where does sin originate? Within. Sin originates within a person, within their heart. What is the heart? The heart is the central seat of your being and your thinking. It is what thrusts forward the convictions of what you do. Think about something that you have a strong conviction about. Strong conviction. It originates in the heart. One of my son's favorite words is, geez. I thought, boy, we moved to the right place, right? He loves it. It's a conviction of his heart. Snack time? Cheese, right? He knows, man. He is all about it. And you give him cheese, and he's eating every single bit of it. He has no problem. Pray for us. <laughs> Moving on. Because you said in your heart, within, you said at the very core of your convictions, look what he says, I will ascend to heaven. There's some place that he's not that he wants to be. Discontentment? Yes. I will raise, now pay attention, my throne above the stars of God. Do you realize that Satan had a throne before any of this ever happened? The fact that he has a throne, the fact that he was placed, the fact that he is an anointed guardian cherub, all show us of his high-ranking ability. I mean, who sits on a throne? Rulers. Somebody who is to oversee something and to rule upon something is the idea. He had a realm of rulership at that time. But what's he going to do? I'm not happy with where my chair is right here, so I'm going to pick my chair up and I'm going to take it to where God is. And notice what it says, above the what of God? Stars. What does ancient Hebrew cosmology tell us? Could be angels. Could be. I'm going to ascend above all the angels. I'm going to take my rulership and I'm going to leave these crackpots behind and I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm packing my bags and going to California, right? And I will sit on the Mount of Assembly, the Mount of God. I'm going to make sure that that's where my throne is, right there. Look what he says here. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now pause for a second and think about that sentence. I will make myself like the most high. Pause for just one second and just, just think. Ladies, what if you came home and your husband said, I'm going to make myself like the most high. Now we giggle. Yeah, I'm like you can't even get your socks separated. But, but, how do you respond to that? I mean, besides straight jacket and all that. How do you respond to that? I will make myself like the most high. What do you think? Is it arrogant? Is it prideful? Is it boastful? Hold it. Is it possible? You see what I'm saying? The sheer fact that we go, mm, he's crazy right? Too much cough syrup, something. But notice, for the simple fact that he would make a, a statement, a claim like that, makes you sit here and go, wait a second, that doesn't even work. Because no one's like the most high. 
Even lost people would get that. You see what I'm saying? I'm going to make myself like God. Good luck. And then that's when you change your name back, right? That's how it goes. Because you know it's not possible. It's not going to click. It's not going to work. It's futility at its finest. It makes you sit here and wonder, what in the world was Satan thinking? Does he have more knowledge of God than we ever will on this earth right now? He does. He knows the scriptures better than we do. That's why he constantly gets us to not read it. And yet for all that he knows and how he was specially designed and crafted and cared for and given responsibility and accountability and all these things, he still within wanted to make himself, and it's very interesting, like the Most High. Notice the boundary in his comment. He knew he couldn't be the Most High. Everybody see that? So what's the next best thing? Be like him. We're going to have two gods at rule. That's what we're going to have. I'm going to set up just like that. Notice it says here, verse 15, Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the grave, to the underworld, to the abode of the dead. You think you want these lofty positions and you think you want all this prestige and this glory and you want to be made much of, guess what? You're going to get the opposite. I'm going to cast you out like garbage is the idea. He says here, to the recesses of the pit. Now, where in the world is the big application wrap-up, what do I take home with me moment? It's really hard to pull from just looking at some of the factual specifics of Satan. But one verse stood out to me that I thought, you know what? This is enough for me to chew on all week and be super happy about it. So, let's take our Bibles and turn back to 1 John. Anybody want to guess what it's right before? Second John. See, that's funny. Or you don't have a sense of humor, right? Funny stuff. It's real funny when you're talking to new believers. You're helping them through the Bible. It's right before Second John. They're like, oh, okay, okay. You know? And then all of a sudden the light bulb comes on. They're like, oh. Then you hear, wah, wah. Anyway. Chapter 3. 1 John's a good book, too. Chapter 3, let's start in verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. What's the subject here? Deception. Okay? And wanting to keep our foot out of the bear trap. So here it is. Number one, the one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. In other words, the one who, and it's very important that you see practices righteousness. We're not talking about positional righteousness. We're talking about experiential righteousness. We're made righteous by faith in Christ because he was righteous on our behalf by his completed work. We're talking about now practicing his life in our life, living the new life in Christ is the idea. So practicing righteousness, we are righteous just as he is righteous. In other words, we're in line with Jesus' character and what he would do. Because a lot of people look at 1 John and they go, but if you don't practice righteousness, you're not really saved. That is not on John's plate whatsoever. Verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Stop. Does everybody see the dualism there? Does everybody see it's about practicing and what you do in your life? Notice he doesn't say if you sin, you're not saved. Does everybody see that? 
What does it mean to be of the devil? Whenever Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, and was talking to Peter, does that mean that Peter wasn't saved? Pretty harsh words, though. You see what I'm saying? So let's not let our minds jump into this realm of this idea of trying to qualify everybody as saved and not saved. You read just the beginning of this book, you find out it's addressed to saved people. John had no doubt in his mind. Very important for us to understand. But notice what he says. The one who practices sin, that sin is habitually going on in your life, is of the devil. Your characteristics are in line with things that are anti-God, which is scary. It is scary to think that a Christian who has been discipled can actually live their lives in such a way as to where they resemble more of the enemy than they do the Savior. That's a scary place to be. It doesn't make you not saved. Why? Because you didn't do anything to earn your salvation. You can't do anything to lose your salvation. Your salvation's locked up in the cross. That's important. The blood of Jesus has already paid for that, and, and he don't allow refunds. So that's important to know. But we can get to a point in our lives where we are straying So he's bringing this to an account, and then he wants you to know something really specific, and this is what I want us to grab. The Son of God, middle of verse 8, appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Now think about what I say when I say this. Is Satan great? He's greater than all of us, isn't he? In fact, even when Michael the archangel was going to bring an accusation accusation against him and Jude because they're arguing over the body of Moses, what in the world is all that about, right? Good grief. But he says he didn't dare speak an accusation or rebuke against him. He said, the Lord rebuke you, which is important. Now, some of us have been brought up with the I bind Satan in the name of Jesus theology. You can't do that. That's not your power. And you'll be really hard-pressed to find it anywhere in here, okay? We do not have that kind of power to bind Satan. It's not our job. If we spend too much time getting focused on Satan in the church, we're going to be less focused on Jesus. That's a problem. That's not a focus that this church wants at all. So that whole idea in mind, one thing that we can focus on is the work of the Son of God. What did the Son of God do? Read it with me again. The Son of God appeared for this very purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Is Satan alive and well and working? Is Jesus going to deal with it? Everybody find hope in that? See, that's the good stuff. That's the, right, barbecue. Yeah, that's the cream on your pancakes. That ain't just cream, that's Cool Whip, right? It's good stuff. Because here's what you realize. Does life get bad? is there stuff that's happened to you this week that you would never talk to anyone about? Yes. And it was either our own doing or the enemy tempting us or us falling for the same old thing again. And we say, good grief, when will all of this get some kind of relief? Guess what? It's already been bought and paid for. The judgment is to come. Now, why is this important? Because think about this, and this should motivate us to really Consider who we associate with in our lives and what they need to hear coming out of our mouths. Because people who don't have Jesus don't have that hope. Their lives are their lives. Does that make sense? 
and a life without the hope of Jesus coming for a specific purpose in order to destroy everything that Satan is wreaking havoc on this world, if they don't have that hope, what do they have? Nothing. Nothing. Now I'm going to give you an example, paint you an illustration that very few of you are going to be able to relate to. That's how you know it's good preaching, right? How many people have ever heard of the band Lincoln Park? Okay, some of us. Okay, not very many. They were more popular back in the late 90s. They're kind of riding that late 90s wave, still being popular like that. Their singer just committed suicide two or three days ago. You think he had hope before him? You see, that's where people get. That's where people apart from Christ get. Now, I'm saying that Christians can't commit suicide. That's not true. Saul did it. I believe Saul was saved. I think it's pretty plain in the text. King Saul killed himself. People can lose sight. People can let the devil so bear down on them to where... Isn't that the beauty of a resurrected life, though? Doesn't Jesus say, I came to give them life and life abundantly? Cost him his life. But by costing it him, by costing him his life, he offers it open and freely to you. See, that's the jackpot. That's the, I can't take it anymore. Wait a second. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. And in fact, it's not just that I can take more of it. I can gladly take it because I know that I have a resolve and a hope and a vindication that I can't supply because if I did, it would be the worst party ever, right? But I've got one that's going to be of eternal glory. I've got one that's going to be of massive hope. I've got one that I do not deserve in any form, fashion, or facet. And yet, the Bible tells me it has been lavishly poured out upon me. I picture a big barn. And I open up the big doors and throw them back. And all of this grace just pours over me. And something's going to knock me on the floor. Let it be that. Let me drown in that. Let me drown in the constant hope of having Jesus, who if he came for no other reason, if I knew nothing else about him, he destroyed the works of the devil. It's going to get taken care of. It's going to be dealt with. It's like when your dad gets in on the fight, right? Nobody relates to that? I'm starting to strike out. Let's pray. God, thank you. Even though we look at things about Satan, of all people, we can learn a lot from his fall. We can be tempted with the same things. We can fall prey to those. We can be deceived. We can let the things of this life capture our gaze and lose sight of you.
Father, I pray that we would have a deep-seated appreciation for the Lord Jesus right now. If we knew nothing else about him, he has come to destroy, to destroy the works of the devil. He will set all things right. Father, in our lives, in our weeks, tomorrow's Monday. We all deal with Monday. Do the people around us have that hope? Do the people around us know that the victory is locked up, certain, secure? Here's one thing that we know, it is available. So Father, I pray that you would open doors for us to walk through and communicate, talking about, you know what, there may not be a resolve here, but there is one eternally present who pleads our case and who destroys these things. Father, thank you that you see fit to save people. We pray it in the name of Christ Jesus, our beautiful Savior. Amen.